Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November the 19th, 2015. This is episode 1678 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a great one for you today because it is a Thursday and it is the return of a real, everyday, normal Listener call-in show. My call-ins have actually been kind of light. Um, and I think it's because I haven't been doing consistent call-in shows because of three workshops, two of mine and one I had to teach at next, and then other things interrupting things. And we are back on schedule. Now, we're going to get interrupted again, I know, because Thanksgiving's next week. And, man, I take Thanksgiving off, and then I take a week off at Christmas. Uh, I just do. I always have, all the way back to my cable days. But other than that, man, we're just cruising through, so make your calls. I want to say a couple things about some calls that came in today. Um, if you have a problem with a product that is one of my sponsor's products, and I'm actually going to address the problem here in a second, but what I would actually prefer, instead of calling me, emailing me, whatever, before you bring it to my attention, please go to the manufacturer reseller and give them an opportunity to answer your problem. Sometimes I feel like I'm dad, you know? But my sister did this. Okay, did you talk to your sister about it? No, I want you to. No, it doesn't work that way. Uh, that's not really the case here, but it kind of is. And sometimes I get stuff like that. You know, like, the uh, discount code's not working. Did you email them and ask them why? I mean, you know, I, I can do it. But at least give my sponsors and my MSB supporters a chance to fix stuff for you before you come to me. Now, here was the question that came in by phone, and it was like a 10-minute question or something, and it, it doesn't need to be that long. Basically, I, I endorsed Berkey filters. A guy was going to buy a Berkey filter, but he read some reviews of people that said the filters break, and they mean they break where the plastic part goes into the filter, and you screw onto that plastic part, it comes separated. I have had my Berkey filter since I lived in Arlington, Texas. So this is my third house since I bought the same filter. I've been all over and had Berkey filters. I usually get a good year, year and a half out of a set of filters. You can clean them, but I usually just replace them. I've never had one fail. I've seen one separate, and it's when I took the whole filter, packed it up, and didn't take the filters out, and I moved it in my vehicle, bouncing down the road and up the dirt road, and two of the six in the filter separated. I don't think they're meant to do that, and I don't know what people are doing to cause them to separate, but I've never seen it. That's, that's all I can say about that one. Um, it is plastic if you pick up the... I mean, there's a lot of things that this makes me think of. Like, I remember this grill I recommend. People are like, well, you know, the wheel rusted off of it after only three years. You know, metal parts that are exposed to the elements rust. Maybe you should lube it. Well, it gets clogged up in the, in the, in the grill. Clean your grill. Like, there are certain things you cannot do, do. This grill was, I picked it up by the, by the shelving and the shelf broke. The shelf is not a handle. It's a shelf. It's designed to bear weight from the top, not the bottom. So if people are picking up their, you know, their, you, you, you take a Berkey filter, it's like a kind of like a bucket with the filters in it, and you're grabbing the filter and picking it up and shoving it on. That's not what it's meant to do. It's meant to filter water, not bear the weight of the entire system. So I haven't had this problem, and that's just an example I wanted to throw out there and address that call without playing it and doing a 10-minute response. Anyway, it just kind of a public service announcement. If you ever have a problem with a sponsor or a vendor, please, I'm asking you, I'm not telling you, please do me a favor. At least ask them to help it. Now, if you ask 
and they don't respond or they respond in some way that you find to be improper, tell me and I will fix it or I will fix them. That is my commitment to you. That's how I've run this ship for eight years and I will keep it that way. I have a very high standard for people that are associated with this show. And I haven't thrown many out the door, but there's been a handful And they went out the door straight away when I figured out that there was a problem. I will always do that for you. Uh, on that note, let's hear from a couple of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure that the show is for you here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is jmbullion.com. When I'm looking for silver or gold, I go to jmbullion.com, and I'll tell you why. They're a small enough company that I can personally communicate directly with the president, Michael, at any time of my choosing. And that means as, uh, as someone that's endorsing them, if you ever have a problem that doesn't get resolved by their customer service, which is 99% of the time stellar anyway, I can make sure that it gets taken care of for you. And I think that's really important in my sponsors. Next is pricing. The entire point of buying silver and gold is it's the same, it's the same, it's the same. You get the same Silver Eagle from JM Bullion as you do from Atmex or Monex. It's exactly the same. It's the same purity, it's the same weight, it's the same design, it's the same cut. It is the same. It's like buying a Wilson basketball, whether you buy it from you know Walmart or Academy Sports and Outdoors. It's the same. That's the point. So why pay more? So why not deal with a company that's a small company, that has great customer service, that offers free shipping on all orders, and has better pricing when you're buying the same thing. Now, why silver and gold? I'm not an all-in guy. I'm not the guy that, like, you need to get out of the dollar. They're going to burn it to the ground. It's going to be worthless tomorrow. By the way, give me your dollars and here's some silver. I'm not that guy. But I do know that the plan for our money is a continued devaluation through the process of inflation, which is a hidden tax on the wealth of the American people. And I know that's the case because the former chairman of the Federal Reserve said so on the floor of the United States House of Representatives while being questioned by Ron Paul. He admitted that and said, it's okay. That's the way the system works. It's supposed to work that way. Well, if that's the plan, then my plan is to make sure I have a wealth assurance policy. We talk about insurance a lot, but assurance is, is equally important. And the way I personally do that is I have 10% of my net wealth, roughly, in silver and gold. I recommend that you do something similar. My personal recommendations are that you consider uh, a, a wealth assurance program of 5% to 10% of your net wealth in hard commodities like silver and gold. And if you need silver and gold, I can't give you a better recommendation than JM Bullion. Check them out today. And remember, members of our support brigade, you do get a discount on larger orders from JM Bullion. Check the benefits section of your MSB account to learn more about that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, westernbotanicals.com. Um, I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines, be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat uh, the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I don't prescribe treatments, and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs, raw herbs, and herbal supplements, and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you. And if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. 
That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time, six-plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our Support Brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account, and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, that is one of the best anti-inflammatory things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulder's acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things there. Basically, guys, if it's herbal and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals, where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home to empower you not only to use their formulas, but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at westernbotanicals.com. Check them out today. Again, westernbotanicals.com. And if you're an MSB member, do not forget to get your premium membership, 25% off everything they sell every day of the year. Now let us take a look at the year that was the episode of the year being 1678. Alex Shrugged has the following for us today. The Divine Right of Kings and the Start of Political Parties. Lost in a Dream, Pilgrim's Progress and the Martian. And many firsts. I'll just read the first for you, and then I'll read the first segment. The first engine is introduced in Philadelphia this year. The first medical pamphlet is published in America. The first chrysanthemums arrive in Europe. And the first woman doctor is officially recognized by a doctorate of philosophy from the University of Padua. And that's the first woman doctor, I think, ever with a doctor's level degree recognized by the emerging systems of universities, etc., throughout the Middle Ages and the Age of Enlightenment. All right, the divine right of kings and the start of political parties is the one I'm going to read for you. Pilgrim's Progress is actually about the book and where it came from. It's pretty interesting, but I want to read this one. Who picks the king? Is it God or do the faithful have a say? A few years ago, the English Parliament passed a religious test to ensure that only Anglicans hold public office. The king's brother James is a Catholic, so he naturally is denied a position in the admiralty. However, James is also the heir apparent to the throne of England, so Parliament tries to exclude James from succession. Some argue the throne is the divine right of kings, that is. It is God who selects the king, and Parliament cannot refuse the king based on his religion. People are the Tories, which is an Irish word meaning a rebel who supported the king during the English Civil War. In the modern day, those who support the monarchy are still called Tories. Those who oppose the Tories are called country party or Whigs. When it seems as if James will be excluded from the throne, King Charles II just dissolves Parliament. Debate will continue into later parliaments, and stuff will really at the fan when Charles himself converts to Catholicism. But that's another story. The division creates the first political parties. My take by Alex Shrugged, the philosopher John Locke was a Whig. I read his argument against the divine right of kings, and it goes like this. We are all children of Adam and Eve. We are all one family. There is no heredity line from Adam designated by God as a kingly line. Therefore, all of us, any of us, could be designated as a king. This equality allows us to place limits on the designated king's power. In the Bible, David was anointed king by the prophet Samuel. 
Yet David's power was not absolute. He maintained certain privileges, but he was subject to the law like any other man. Thus, the claim of absolute right of kings is absolute bunk. In the modern days, we still want a king. We want someone to lead us to fight our battles, to do what is right, so that we don't have to think about it. Uh, hashtag, I am too damned lazy. It's such a temptation to change the icon on our Facebook page and call it a day. But difficult as it is, we must take responsibility for ourselves. Certainly, we must organize into a government, but for a practical reason, those organizations with the most power over individual choice must be as local as possible because no organization, no matter how benevolent, can know the needs of the individual a thousand miles away. Even if we all friend the President of the United States on Facebook, it's time to wake up. I'll take a contrarian view of part of that. I got a lot to say on this one. So, What, what Alex is basically saying here is the, 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 the most power should exist in the smallest governments, which are local. I say local governments are more capable of evil than giant ones because they have the means to go out and enforce their will by using higher echelons of government to do so. And what I mean by that is if the federal government, just the federal government, was the only one that did it, passed a law that said something like uh, no one can park their car in their driveway, then the federal government's screwed because they can't enforce that law. You have to park your car in a garage if a garage exists. Otherwise, then you can park in your drive. If you have a garage, you must park inside you. Federal law, boom, you have to do it. Okay, enforce that from the federal level. But an HOA can do it, and they're the tiniest form of government there is. And then they can take that law, thou must park in thy garage, and go to a higher level of government like a city or county court and use the force of the higher echelon of government to make the other individual comply or suffer the consequences through the use of force at the point of a gun under the threat of violence. So it's actually small governments with great power that actually can do the greatest tyranny And the more powerful the government echelons above them are, the more they empower those smaller governments to do said evil. That sucks. Because it means the answer is neither local, federal, or state. It only lies with us. And that's the takeaway from this whole thing. See, our founders were smart. Right? They really were. I'd prefer a stateless society. I really would. I also accept the evolution of where society is today, and unlike myself, many people aren't responsible enough to actually live in such a place just yet. But if we're going to have that, then do you notice how our founders took this whole concept of the divine right of kings or anybody, and either argument being made, the religion could be used to, to, to condone or exclude rulers, and just got rid of it with the separation of church and state? The church and state separation has been argued from multiple sides. And what a lot of religious people want to say is it exists to protect religion from government, not to protect government from religion. Eh, wrong answer. It exists to protect both institutions from each other because when they come together, the greatest evils that have ever been done in our society have been done by the combination of the two. Government itself is generally quite weak unless it can convince a majority of people to follow it into violence. And the number one way by which it's been able to do that is through adherence to religious doctrine, generally twisted and perverted, no doubt, but certainly that's been the mechanism of control. God wants this. These other people are godless, etc. Agnosium. Religion in of itself, without the force of the state whether it exists as a combination or as a theocracy, is, can be very dangerous. But without that, 
You can have all the religious beliefs you want. You can have all the beliefs you want that somebody should be stoned or put to death or beaten or caned. If you have no means to execute that force on another individual, religion is completely benign, save for those who voluntarily choose to adhere to it. When you put force of state and religion together, it always results in misery. So our founders were smart enough to recognize this and prohibit it in our Constitution. And it seems that both sides have failed to understand the wall erected between the two. Those who are supposedly for separation, complete and total separation, of the more liberal side of things, feel that this means they should never have to see, look at, hear, anything religious in nature, especially if it happens to be somehow associated with public property. This is nonsense. Those on the other side want to say, yes, there's a protection of us from the state, but not from the state from us, and we should be able to do things like use our religious beliefs through the state to enact law. And wrong answer. Wrong answer. Our founders made sure that we had a society where faith was protected, but law was secular. Law was secular. So how do we justify this against taking an oath of office and pledging your allegiance in doing so to God? The founders were still wise enough to know that a man who takes an oath to his God will remain loyal to his oath, period. And the oath that you take when you end it with, so help me God, is not to follow your religion, but to follow the Constitution of the United States of America. They were pretty smart guys, weren't they? My take by Jack Spierko. With that, let's um, remind you guys real quick, you can help support the show by joining the Member Support Brigade. All I want to say about that is you can join, you should, it would help me. It would help me do uh, continue to do what I do and continue to build better content for you. And every time I get a new member, and every time I build the membership base, when I go to companies and say, hey, I want discounts for my members, and they say, how many do you have? The bigger that number, the more they will do to be part of the mix, the more they will give, and the more I can convince larger and larger providers of services you want to buy that, hey, this is worth doing. So that's my that's my uh, pitch to you today. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, which is your questions and comments and concerns for me. You call those in to 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. When you do that, Make sure you're calling from a quiet location. Make sure if you're on a cell phone, you got a few bars. Uh, most of us are on cell phones today, so check your connection before you talk to me because there's no one on the other end to tell you I can't hear you. And please make sure you're in a quiet area. And please know what you're going to say. If you if you have to, and this would be helpful, write down your question. should be one or two sentences. Get it out first. Just get it out first. Give me your details. It'll go so smoothly. If you try to give me your details and wrap your question into it, You'll get derailed, you'll hang up, you'll get frustrated, you'll call back. I've been doing this eight years. Trust me on this. Have your question prepared. Ask your question, then give the details. I promise you it'll work. I am a professional. I don't say that arrogantly, but this is what I do for a living. I am a professional. Trust me with that. Let's go ahead and take that first question today. Hey, Jack. It's Woody from Jimmy with a comment. Uh, Armstrong Economics, uh, November 17th. I'm Martin Armstrong. He says that police ass, these civil asset forfeitures exceeded all burglaries in 2014. 
Um, in other words, in 2014, the police took $4.5 billion uh, from us, while burglary offenses suffered an estimated $3.9 billion. So the police are now taking more assets than the criminals. In Canada, they're warning people coming south not to carry cash because the police might take it. Uh, the police on the Interstate 95 in Virginia have been trained uh, who to stop to try to get the most money. And um, in Washington, D.C., there's also a lawsuit because the police take as little as 100 bucks from you. Um, uh, like your show, man. I'd like to be interested. Right on. So this is interesting to me. Um, I, I just actually had some interaction with Jake, also known as Prepper Survivor on Zello, and he took the Citizens Academy uh, in Tennessee at his county. I think it was with the county sheriff. I'm not sure which law enforcement uh, agency it was, but I think it was the sheriff. If not, Jake, you can correct me in the show notes in the comments. But uh, he said that this is a pattern that they're, you're using now. And in his, this whole Citizens Academy, he actually really enjoyed it. He got a lot out of it. He learned a lot. But it was this one thing that he disagreed with the instructors on. And uh, it was this pattern of seizing property. And what they had been doing is it started out with they figured out that people were moving drugs from places like California to, to across the country. And they were going through Tennessee. So they were looking for a pattern. The pattern was middle-aged man, young girl. Late model car, not a great car, not a terrible car. Doing like exactly the speed limit. Things don't look quite normal. Look for any excuse to pull them over, pull them over. And start talking to them. If they seem nervous, ask them to step out of the car. Tell them you want to talk to both of them separately. See if their stories match. Common interrogation te technique by police. And it's why if that ever happens to you, you know, other than the basic information that you would give anybody, you shut up and say, look, you want to talk any further, we have to talk with counsel. And if they say, well, that makes you look guilty or whatever, are you, I'm sorry, are you denying me counsel? Are you really during an interaction between us? Because I, I don't think that's right, you know? And be confident and nice. And always be nice. You can assert your rights and be nice with police officers. They generally immediately realize that, like, okay, this guy's not hiding anything or he wouldn't be like this. Right, but these are guilty people. They're transporting narcotics across multiple state lines. Uh, I'm not saying that should be illegal. I'm just saying it is. So they're doing their jobs, and then they, they search the vehicle because the stories don't match. They find any infraction, pull them over. They find a drugs. They seize the drugs. Well, it became evident as this guy was talking that under these seizure laws, they started realizing it was more profitable to pattern these people on a return trip because what they do, they drop the drugs off, they get the money. And then they drive back, and there's kind of a flow. They're heading, they're heading east with dope and west with money. So they start doing all of these patrols and all of this, you know, surveillance on westbound traffic. And they start seizing the money. And they said this actually hurts the drug cartels more because they're losing their profit. Jake's like, I, I don't think so, man. And why are you taking people's money? They're not committing a crime. They may have committed a crime to get the money, but you can't prove that. You have no evidence, and they just take the money. I don't think our law enforcement should have this potential. Now, if you catch a guy in the commission of a crime, like he has the dope on him and he has money on him, well, then I see pro, you know, seizure is a legitimate law enforcement tool. All you anarchists out there, chill. Under the current system as the law is written, okay? That doesn't mean I agree with it. It means I get it. But when you're doing this, you're you're just taking money because the person has it. And you've made an assertion that based on your 
your supposed investigation, which is basically your opinion of the individual, there's no reason for them to have that money. This brings me to Bitcoin. This brings me to Bitcoin. This is a great reason to have some money in Bitcoin and have you know an offline wallet or something like that where you can claim your money in any place and then convert it to cash or whatever, or convert it to you know uh, basically debit card usage or whatever because they can't seize that because they can't find it because they don't even understand it. That's why they use the jack as a tool for committing crimes. No, this is a crime. The crime is law enforcement taking property without being able to specifically prove that a crime has been committed. That's theft. And it is theft. And it's wrong. And it sickens me. But you know what sickens me worse? Do you know what sickens me worse? Do you know who stole more money that makes both the burglary number and the seizure by law enforcement numbers look like child's play? The, the government in total through taxation. Do you know that Americans paid $1.4 trillion dollars in income tax in 2014? That's the companies and the people, everybody at the, the, the small level. That's not the corporate income taxes. That's, that's the pass-through income with LLCs and stuff like that. But yeah, Americans paid $1.4 trillion dollars in income taxes last year. That doesn't include Social Security. doesn't include state sales tax. doesn't include property taxes. I didn't have time for this show to add it all up. I would, I would like one person out there to do a project for me. I would love to have somebody estimate the total amount of money collected by all bodies of government and taxes per annual in the United States. And if you want to do this, come to the show notes for today's show and say, I'm doing it, right? And then other people work with you. If you like form a team, don't have like 10 people doing this on their own. And, but wouldn't, wouldn't it be interesting? I don't know that anybody's ever compiled that number. I couldn't find it with a, you know some just basic Google foo. Maybe a little deeper I could have found it. Uh, maybe somebody could find someone who's already done it. But I would like to know, if you add up, and I know people like have made lists of all the taxes and all, but what's the number? What's the number You know, with the 330 million-odd Americans in total taxes paid within the borders of the United States of America per year? How much do they steal? And it is theft. And if you don't think it's theft, because, oh, that's just nonsense, Jack. I'm not saying that you can't make a case for this theft. You can't say society can't function without or whatever. I don't agree with you, but you can make a case for that. But you can't say it's not theft. Here's why. Theft is taking property that's not yours against the will of the person that has it using whatever force is necessary to complete the taking of the property. And money would be a form of property. That is taxation. That is taxation. You can't say no. They take it against your will, and if you don't give it to them, not only do they use force to get it, they take more in the form of penalties and interest. So tax is theft. And just in your income tax, the American people had $1.4 trillion stolen from them in direct theft by income tax. You start looking at what the Federal Reserve does by robbing the value of money by printing more of it, and it's trillions every year. And then there's all the other taxes. My thoughts on that. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another one. Jack, this is Richard in Wisconsin. My question relates to post-apocalyptic livestock care. Basically, the background I'm looking at is if you have a small homestead, not talking about a large one or it could even pertain to that, but having chickens or pigs or cows or any of the above or goats, how would you prepare for having some sort of Uh, hiccup in the supply chain, not being able to order, say, your regular chicken feed, your regular livestock feed, 
um, and not having available uh, large available pasture to graze them on constantly. Obviously, it was done in the past. We didn't always have Amazon or, you know, tractor supply or whatever to order our feed through. But I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on what you need to do. I imagine it has a lot to do with growing uh, uh, different feed for them and what they usually do eat, um, as well as providing them pasture and stuff like that on what the land that you do have. But if you could provide some insight on that, I would really appreciate it. Thank you, and have a great day. Well, the question sort of works as a thought experiment. I mean, in a post-apocalyptic world, if you think you're going to be sitting on your homestead running chickens and goats uh, for very long uh, without some reassemblance of society and some reassemblance of an economy, it's just not going to happen because you're going to have bigger problems than how do I feed my chicken. So on, on some levels, it's kind of a, a, a question that doesn't really uh, fit reality. Uh, you, you know, I'm a prepper, guys, and I've been teaching prepping for a long time, and I'm a believer of prepping first for the small disasters and then gearing up to prep for large ones. I'm a believer that we could have severe economic crisis, severe crisis due to widespread illness, uh, severe crisis uh, in, in the worst case scenario, probably due to warfare. Um, and, and those are, those are big, big problems, but, this concept that we're going to all live like, you know, the aftermath of that TV show revolution or something like that, we got to let go of that because that's just not, that's not the way things are going to go. It's not going to happen. And if you're preparing for that, odds are you're not preparing for the things that are likely to happen. So make sure we don't get too crazy about this Teotihuacan stuff and, and what have you because um, it's just not going to be that way. You're not going to get to a point where for five years you can't buy chicken feed. And again, if you do, it's going to be the least of your problems. And you're probably going to be into a position where if you're in that situation, we are going to be doing some of the things I'm going to talk about here. And you're not going to be doing it on, on your little small property because people are going to be going out and basically going Old West style and claiming new property. There's a, there's a shitload of property out there that nobody's doing anything with. That could be, you know, you could run a couple hundred chickens on and get eggs out of. They wouldn't be hyper-productive the way they are now, but, you know, eventually you'd get to a situation where you you are, you know, eating eggs and roosters, and you let the chickens that get killed or picked off get killed or picked off. And, I mean, you talk, you're talking about an entire rebuilding of society there. So let's take a look at it more from a standpoint of can we raise livestock without inputs? And what does it take to do that? Well, it takes an understanding of the carrying capacity of your land. That's what it takes. So if you have a couple acres, you can probably run a few chickens on it. And from scraps and from what's on the land, they can probably eke by and get in existence. They're not going to give you as many eggs, but they'll survive. And certain birds are better for that than other birds. And they probably will do a lot of damage to the land in that situation too. So then you have to start looking at, well, what can the land provide if I take along the concept of I'm growing things and bringing them to the chickens and letting them out for less time during the day so that they do less damage? And, and that's just a function of mathematics. So if we had small plot of land and we wanted to do something like that, then what we need is we need animals that can leave our land and will come back of their own, uh, own choice and are able to go out and forage beyond the range of our land. So then we start looking at things. If you want poultry that does that, you don't want chickens. You want pigeons. You want pigeons. You put in a pigeon coop or a bunch of dove coats with pigeons in them, and pigeons will range quite a few miles and come back every day. 
And then you only need enough food and water and housing to make them feel like this is home. And then you can live on pigeon eggs and squab and coals. And you can do that with very little inputs because you don't need to feed them very much. See how that works? Because that animal can go out and gather and return. We can store massive amounts of cheap sugar so we could do bees the same way. Bees will forage two miles away and back. And then bees can produce honey and wax and pollen for us, and they can forage beyond the range of what we can allow them to have. And you have to start looking at other options like that if you want livestock. And then you, the stuff that stays on your land, you have to manage it to the carrying capacity of the land. And if you're worried about that, then what you should be doing right now is figuring out how do I do that now? Or how do I take the inputs to the absolute minimum? And people have done it with chickens where they say, well, I feed my chickens no grain. And what I'm doing is a you know Jeff Lawton-style chicken tractor on steroids where I'm throwing basically all the stuff that we would compost to the chickens and I'm getting. But how much are you going to produce? Unless you're a full-time farmer on quite a few acres, which you're not because you said you're not, you're probably not going to do that. And if there's a post-apocalypse, well, where are you going to get all that stuff because nobody's going to be giving it away for free anymore? Plus, how are you going to go get it? So we, then we have to say again, well, how realistic is that? You know, in the Great Depression, we weren't that bad. In the Great Depression, if you had money or resources, you could get a sack of grain. In fact, there were Supreme Court decisions because people didn't sell their grain the way the government told them to. It tells us it was available. So if you're a believer in the end of the world scenario and you think it's coming, then honestly, you are better off right now finding any way you can to buy a lot of land, dirt cheap, and set yourself completely up off-grid and have the ability to forage, to hunt, to fish, and yes, to run animals on even not your own land. But if you have, you know, 20 acres in the middle of nowhere and all the adjoining land is basically vacant, just a few other people like you, and you have chickens there, they have miles that they can roam and figure stuff out and get things done. And then you can girdle your trees with some cheap tin so you don't even have a chicken house so your chickens live up in the in the tree and no animals can get to them because they can't climb up the girdled steel. You can put in laying boxes that are elevated and off the ground. You can run chickens that are light breeds that can fly. You can feed them enough to make them home on you and you can do things like with doves and bees and you can live off the land and you can do that if you really want to. My question is, do you really want to? And if you're only doing it because you have fear of this end-of-the-world scenario, then you really need to evaluate the fear. If you want to do it because you love the lifestyle and the independence, the freedom, and security is a byproduct of it, then maybe you should do that. My belief is what we all should be doing is striving to minimize our inputs and realizing the carrying capacity of our land and having a plan. Well, what do I do if I start to have a cascade failure of my ability to get the inputs? And you do what you would do with people and food. You begin react, rationing the food. And you determine what your carrying capacity is. And then you do what you wouldn't do with people. You start calling. So I have 160 ducks. They pretty much eat a 50-pound bag of feed a day. That's what it takes to feed my flock now. And the reason we could do that is the eggs they produce exceed the cost of a bag of food a day. If for any reason that equation changes, either we can't sell we can't get the feed, we can sell, but we can't make enough money to cover the cost, then we have to start saying, okay, how how much can we cut back and still have them succeed? And then we say, okay, we have to start breaking down 
some of the ducks that we normally wouldn't, and we convert them to food, and we start eating them. And we can eat them all the way back, and as long as they're at a replacement capacity, when the problem's rectified, we can start letting them reproduce again and build the capacity back up. Every small farm and large farm in America should have that plan, at least in theory, and maybe play with it and practice a little bit so that they could execute it if they need to. And it's what good ranchers and farmers do right now. Greg Judy told me, if you have a drought, the first thing you do is sell off every cow that's not going to make you optimum profit by the end of the cycle. Immediately, you get rid of them. You either sell them or kill them. And you cut your herd down to the capacity the land can handle through the drought. You run that herd through the drought. And then you're selling. You're selling at a time when meat is going to go at a premium because nobody else did it, and everybody had to sell off late, and everybody dumped their animals, and now there's a shortage, and now you can put your beef on the market at a time when the price has gone back up, because now there's a shortage of beef. So by the time the surplus clears itself out, your animals that you've kept were the best animals, they've done the best job for you, they're at a premium, and you're selling them at a premium. See how simple that is. So that's done all the time, right now, not in a post-apocalypse. We have to start thinking that way with animal management if we're going to be profitable with them, either through sale or as animals that we use to produce products and goods for us, for ourselves and our own needs. But the reality is you can run a small chicken flock on not much. You can run quail, and they're probably more productive. A quail eats about a pound to two pounds of food a month. So just with storage alone, you could maintain a flock for quite a long time with a few hundred pounds of feet. That's just my take. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. My name is Dalton from Oregon. Uh, my question was a uh, referencing episode 1672 with Tamara Wolfson, and my question was, what type of herbal medicine should I keep in my bug-out bag dash car, and how long is the shelf life on those? Thank you very much. Um. Honestly, the only thing that I carry that's really herbal in, in that situation is a, a drawing salve that's primarily made from calendula and a healing salve that's primarily made from comfrey. And it's because they're so damn effective. And, and they're, in general, they're more effective uh, than anything you can buy off the counter. If you have a, a light scratch, a light wound, something that's not deep, and you want it to start healing like as, as, as quickly as possible, And to actually heal up, to seal up, and for the, the, the your your skin to start regenerating, your cells to start regenerating. There's nothing I know of on the market um, that will do a better job for you than comfrey. Uh, and then the other thing I always want to do is carry something that's that's based with plantain and calendula, because plantain is also very healing, very antibiotic. But calendula, in particular, uh, when used in a salve, is is very good at drawing out infections. So uh, the other things, again, calendula, plantain, and turmeric, those those three are, are what I use for a drawing uh, salve. And I, it's less important to me in a bug-out bag, but I do have those two things. And I have some essential oils that are more tension relief, headache relief, things like that. Peppermint oil is great for that. Lavender oil is great for that. Um, because the reality is, remember what a bob is, a bug-out bag is. It is not to go up in the mountains and live off of and play some twisted version of Red Dawn. It is to get us through three days. And the reality is, for most of the things herbs can do for us at home, um, in acute situations, like I have a freaking headache because 
my kid's sick, and I'm at a hospital, and I need to be able to freaking think because my head hurts, I'm going to take Tylenol or Motrin or something like that instead of white willow bark. Where if I have a, a nagging headache at home, I may use willow bark, um, but I also may use some other things to try to correct the imbalance that's causing the headache in the first situation because a headache is not a deficiency in Tylenol or Motrin. But Tylenol and Motrin work for pain relief so that I can freaking think. And I'm in an acute situation where what I need to do is get through this 72-hour period. So I'm actually far more likely to rely on pharmaceutical-grade stuff in a bug-out bag because it is a lot more shelf-stable than some herbal things. Um, as far as to how, you know, asking, well, what's the shelf life of an herbal preparation? That's like saying, well, what's the shelf life of food? Um The shelf life of beef jerky is really, really long. The shelf life of a cup of milk, not as much. So, you know, and how is it stored? Milk actually does store really long if it's in one of those juice box like things and hyper pasteurized and, you know, processed. So it, that's almost impossible to answer. But I mean, the reason you didn't hear me go into herbals in my basic bug out bag show is because they don't make up a big contention of what I do. They really don't for a bug out bag. These are more things that you keep at your home or if you have a fallback location or a bug-out location, right, um, depending on how you use the terminology, you would keep there. Uh, herbology is more about this understanding of imbalances and correcting imbalances than what we call replacement therapy. So what, what does that mean? What I mean is most people that, that delve into uh, herbology practice replacement therapy, and two of the things I do use seem to fit that, okay, which is comfrey to heal a wound or a drawing salve to pull out an infection and to uh, exhibit antibiotic and antimicrobial properties so that it, it doesn't become infected. Um, they seem like replacement therapies, but they're really not. I'm actually using them because they're superior, right? It, a replacement therapy is I use willow bark over aspirin because aspirin is refined and willow bark has got the salicylic acid that is the essence of aspirin, right? So that's a replacement. I have a headache, and I'm taking the same approach to solving the problem. I'm also looking at a difference here that if I'm using a drawing salve or a healing ointment like, um, like, like again, comfrey, uh, or there's a lot of other things that are actually really good uh, cellular regeneratives, um, then I actually am dealing with a mechanical injury, right? So... Most of what we use for herbs for tend not to be mechanical injuries. They tend to be internal problems. And then we have to start asking ourselves, what's the problem? So if I have a headache, there's a lot of different things that can cause a headache. And it can be anything from moderate stress to have not eaten well to have eaten something that's caused a, a rise in blood pressure that's manifesting as a headache to a tumor. Right? So I have to find out well, what's causing the headache. And, and most Americans that have, you know, it's not a chronic headache, it's a headache that comes on, it's stress-related. So something like a good herbal tea that's not even medicinal in the way that we think of it may actually be a far better treatment for my headache than any type of um, pain relief that I can put together. You know, something like using uh, anti-inflammatory like turmeric combined with a valerian would be one way to address pain and inability to sleep. But they may not be the best. You know, a cup of, uh, of chamomile peppermint tea with some lemon balm and a little bit of honey. And honestly, sitting still for ten breaths and counting your breath ten times. So that whatever you're focused on, you can't for that 
20 seconds that it takes to breathe in and out 10 times and count your breath and reduce the stress. Because the, 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 the cause of the headache is not a deficiency in an herb or a drug. It's a deficiency in your ability to relax. So therefore, we have to remove the stress at least partly so the body can regain its balance. So when I look at bug out bag scenarios, I'm often in a situation where that's nice, Jack. I, I'd like to kick back with a cup of peppermint tea, count my breath a little bit, maybe take a walk, breathe in some, some fresh air and let go. But my kid is on an operating table. Take a freaking aspirin. Take a freaking Motrin. Take a freaking Tylenol. Take what works best for you in that situation. You know? And then that would actually be the case for adding something to it because a good valerian and passion flower blend. And I would say that is something to get in a, in a prepared dosage, like in a bottle that you buy from a good provider. Uh, those two and some other things like California poppies and other ones do a really good job of sedation and let you sleep. People think, I'm not going to sleep. Okay, your kid's on an operating table. Your kid is laying in bed. You're at the hospital sleeping on, trying to lay on the floor. You need to sleep. You need to sleep. When they wake up, you need to be able to help. While they're asleep or out or whatever, you need to sleep when you can. I say this as someone that went through some pretty serious surgery with my wife about, oh, I guess it was nine, ten years ago now because it was before I started the show when she had trigeminal neuralgia. She ended up in ICU. You think you're helping by worrying. You're not. You're not impacting the situation. You need to sleep when they're asleep, when they're being cared for. Sometimes it's hard, but sometimes you need to. And things like that can help you sleep without the side effects of you know, prescription medications and things like that. But that's, that's maybe something that I would then look at and think, maybe, Jack, maybe you should add some sort of a, something that helps you sleep to the essential oils and other things I have. I don't have much. Because I believe that that's for acute situations. And that's what over-the-counter and prescription medications actually are best for. Deal with the acute situation so that we can now step back, examine the underlying problem, and address that. But we have to deal with the acute situations many times simply so we can sleep or so we can think. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Mason in North Georgia, and I have a question about chicken. Is there a bad time of year to start chickens? Details. I planned on getting a little laying clock started this summer, but then took a new job, and uh, my free time and energy kind of went away. It looks like I'll have some time here in December, and I was wondering if that would be an okay time to start chickens in the winter. I live in Zone 7A, so we do get down to about 10 degrees in late January and February. And uh, I just don't know enough about chickens to know how old they need to be to survive those temperatures or what winterizing I could do to a coop uh, so that I could get my chicken started sooner rather than later. I appreciate any uh, suggestions and advice you might have on this, and keep up the great work. We love the show. Bye-bye. Okay, so I want to ask this, answer this question in a way that helps you directly and then indirectly as many people as possible. So I'm going to look at it from two different things. I'm going to look at it from management of young birds during what you would consider to be harsh or harsher conditions than normal, in other words, cold, and a standpoint of my goal is eggs and egg-producing chickens, and when really is the best time to put new birds into a flock to optimize that. Okay, so I would tell you you missed my cherry-picked window for this. 
And the reason is that if you hit my cherry pick window, you're going to be looking at birds starting to lay eggs somewhere between the 1st and 15th of February, which means it's very early in the year. You get your birds laying early in the year. You get a really long laying season out of them before they begin to kind of come down in winter. And with artificial lighting, since they've already come up in their cycle, man, you're banging right through winter if you use artificial lighting. If not, you get a lot out of them in that first year. Let them go through that natural down cycle, and they come right back up for you. And then you're introducing new birds somewhere along the way because a chicken that is two and a half years old uh, and older starts to become an expensive pet versus a really good, reliable layer. And you might, with certain breeds and not using artificial lighting, keep a chicken at three and a half, but boy, you're pushing it. Because remember, they're going to molt at one and a half years of age. They're going to molt at every year of age over that, and they're going to really drop during the molt, Not and they're going to drop after a molt from pre-molt levels. So if a chicken was producing at 100% of its potential before its first molt, it might produce at 70% of that after its molt. Not during, but after. During, it'll go lower. And then in third molt, it drop, may drop to 40% to 50% of production uh, peak. A chicken only has 1,000 ovum, 1,000 eggs. They're born with it. That's all they'll ever have. So every time, it's like you with a, with a rifle with a 1,000 rounds in it. You know, the faster you burn through it, the quicker you run out. And when you run out, you're out. And as you keep shooting, you start having to ration what you're shooting more and more if you're going to stay in the fight. That's how a chicken is. So understand that first of all. So to me, the optimum time is right around September 1st to October 1st. You have your birds laying February, March. Long season of laying. And the beauty is I'm getting a young bird in. I'm take, doing some kind of brooding operation to keep it cooler or warmer anyway. But the, 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 it's not really hot. It's not really cold. And the bird is a month old. Let's take it to September 1st, a month old on October 1st. Still fall. Still beautiful out. It's a month old. It's fully feathered. It's ready to go. Whatever protection I'm going to need to provide for my flock anyway is going to be enough for that bird. Okay, And I'm not going to be putting it out as a young bird into extreme heat or extreme cold. I'm going to adapt it to its coop, its living quarters, and it's perfect. Does that mean there's anything wrong with, with starting birds in December? No, but you, you should look at when you can expect eggs. And it's why, and, and I'm doing this not to say that it's a bad thing, but to encourage you to go ahead and do it. You should see eggs somewhere between, if you, let's say, start your birds on December 15th. They're born on December 15th. You should see your first eggs somewhere between April 5th and June 7th. Kind of late in the year, isn't it? Like, man, that was a long time to wait. And, and it's probably not going to be April 5th. That's that's really young laying birds. And it probably won't be June 20, June 7th. That's 24 weeks. I find chickens really start to crank out eggs at about 20 to 22 weeks. So you're looking at late May. Right around the week before Memorial Day. If you get them in there, you get them going by December 15th. You still got a good egg laying summer coming ahead of you, right? But isn't it better to have them start laying in February or early, even early March than waiting all the way till June to start getting your eggs? So it might be worth going through what you're going to have to go through in December. So what you have to do is you're going to have to take these birds and you're going to have to be more concerned about cold with them. But most people are going to brood chickens for three weeks in a brooder with a heat lamp anyway. I don't do that. 
But chickens are safer in a brooder than ducks because they don't have a tendency to completely soak themselves and freeze themselves to death in their first two days of life. So if we're going to breed them for three weeks anyway, and we start on December 15th, that means we're going to be looking at like January 7th, -ish, somewhere between the 1st and 7th, of them coming out of the brooder, right around New Year's, let's say. Now, this is a problem and a solution. The problem is you got all this stuff going on with Christmas. The, the good thing is a lot of times people have extra time off, more family time, stuff like that during Christmas. So this might be a good thing to do. And you're probably, from what you said, you're not doing a 100 birds. You do a small laying flock. I recommend your laying flock be no less than four. And if you are not planning to sell eggs, no more than a dozen. I mean, that's kind of the, you're going to be giving away eggs if you have a dozen birds. Go below four, you could get a, a bird that just doesn't lay well. You could get a rooster. But I asked for all pullets, and they said, yeah, I've, I've done that. I've done that. Six is great. Six is great, because four are going to be home run layers for you. Four home run layers. Uh, you're going to produce around two dozen eggs a week with the other two birds picking it up. That's enough for anybody. And I think it's a good time to do it. Here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to think about the fact that you're going to have a bird that's only three to four weeks old in January. It will be fully feathered out, but it will not be as resistant to the cold as it would be if it was a little bit older, had a little more fat on it. So you're going to have to think about their housing, making sure they have supplemental heat in their housing. But that's a lamp. That's a lamp, a heat lamp, or even just a good you know, light array, or a small heater with a thermal cube. What's a thermocube? I have one that turns the heater on at 35, turns it off at 45. You put a small heater, little electric heater, inside a coop if you can run power to it on a thermocube, and you never let that temperature go below 35 degrees. The chickens are in there. They're going to be okay. It's probably not even going to come on that often. You know, And if you give them access to shelter from the wind and the, and the rain and the cold, and they decide when they come out and about, then they're going to be fine. But it's going to be a little more work. What would be the best time to do it from a climate standpoint now that you haven't done it in September? Probably about mid-March, and that's when everybody does it. That's when you walk into tractor supply and you hear peep, 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 right? Chick day signs up and all. That's when everybody does it. But then you're not really getting birds into high production fast. And you're going to immediately start to come down the other side. Where if your birds are starting to lay in February... By then, you've come almost 60 days past the solstice, the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year. You're, you're at, at, you know, on February 21st, you're only a month away from the equinox. These birds are being kicked into high gear with this lighting, these, this daylight, or your photo period is, is what it's actually called. They start to have that longer photo period. The, 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 they start ramping up, and as they kind of come into that full 24 weeks of egg-laying glory, man, they're cranking them out like Rambo in that first season all year long. So I'd get them as soon as possible. Again, I like to hit that September 1st date. It's still hot. You're going to be brooding them anyway and protecting them from the heat anyway. But it's not super hot. You've beat the dog days of August. By the time, and I do this, it, this is the same philosophy I do with ducks, which is why I brought 60 ducks in as close to the 1st of December, or September as I could get them. Because I know that about you know, February, I'm going to have duck eggs coming out of my ears from this next wave of ducks. And I still got young birds from my other flocks. And, and what I'll do now 
is all bring birds in about that time every year. This is the other thing that happens. You cheat the molting system. If you bring birds in September or later, they won't molt in that first summer. And when, it doesn't matter with your first birds, but if you bring your replacements in that way, You always have your new birds coming into full glorious production about the time that your, your older flock is beginning to, to, to molt. It's just timing. So that's why I like that date. But I would do it now before I do it in March if you can. And just think about making sure that you give them what they need, shelter. And the big thing birds need is shelter from the wind. The wind is worse than the overall cold. Chickens are pretty strong animals. Get breeds that are right for your area, and you should be fine. Let's go ahead and take another one of them. Hi, Jack. Jason from PA here, just uh, following up on your frugal bug-out bag. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that Dollar Tree is a really good place to stock up some stuff for your uh, bug-out bag. Everything's a dollar. You can get a pair of pliers for a dollar. You can get spools of wire, which are great just because if something breaks, you've got binding wire. Um, they tend to have a lot of small packs of like things like Q-tips, toothpaste, whatnot, everything a dollar, uh, glow sticks, so something that people forget just so you have some lighting, and especially even just the bracelets because uh, when you have children, just giving a kid a glow stick can totally change how they feel and how they feel safe because they've got light, it's colorful light, it's something fun. Uh, so I, I highly recommend checking out Dollar Tree. Uh, for just getting those little extras on a real cheap budget. Yeah, and what I'll say to that is I will take a pair of dollar store pliers over no pliers any day of the week. Though a lot of the tools and stuff that you would get at a dollar store are pretty chinky and have a tendency to not really work well, uh, to break, to bind up. So I think this is a good outlet for things that you otherwise simply would not have. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with a cheap multi-tool in your bug-out bag and owning a good multi-tool that you use every day. Because I'll take a cheap multi-tool. And I've seen, I've seen knock-off multi-tools uh, at dollar stores. And at, I don't know, was Dollar Tree really a dollar store? I haven't been there in a long time. I thought Dollar Tree was like a really cheap discount store. Not everything was a dollar. And there's some stores where everything's a dollar. But I've been in some of the ones, I thought it was Dollar Tree. Maybe it was someplace else where it's like, It's, there's something dollar in the title, but it doesn't mean like the 99 cent stores used to be where everything's a dollar. But like the most expensive thing in the place was like five bucks. And, uh, they had like, uh, the cheap plastic knockoff multi tools, but they've got a knife, they've got a file, they've got a pair of pliers, they've got two screwdriver bits, all that stuff. And they were like, I think $2.99. And do I want to carry that on my belt and rely on that day to day? No, but if, If I, especially when I'm like, okay, I gotta make a bug out bag for my wife, for me, my two kids. Hey, throw that in the kids' bug out bag. Throw that in the wife's bug out bag. You never know when you might get separated from your Bob, but one of the other people have it, right? And it's there and it's useful. And, 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 you know, pliers are like one of the most useful tools for, if you give me pliers and you give me something to cut with, and you give me duct tape, and you give me tie wraps, there's not much that I can't at least temporarily fix. There's some things I can't, you know, but, I mean, honestly, one time when I was a kid, I was driving across this mountain, and it was late, it was like 3 o'clock in the morning, and there was a possum in the middle of the road, it looked like it had been killed and road killed, and, uh, you know, 
I I hit the possum by accident. I, I, I didn't want to mush the possum and gush the possum. So I straddled it so that I wouldn't, you know, um, like mash it. And I should have mashed him because he was playing possum in the middle of the road. And I saw him lift his head in the headlights just as I was about to go over him. I was driving this little Mustang, too. And I felt him in, like, the gearbox of the, the, the steering wheel. And I didn't want to hit him, but I was also kind of a young kid, so I'm like... Whatever, it killed a possum. And the car went, right? Um, and what turned out had happened is that the possum had hit the fuel line right where it went into the fuel pump from underneath and broke a metal fuel line. And where it broke it, there was no way to fix it in the dark. And duct tape and what have you wouldn't have really helped. But if I had some tubing and it had broken higher up away from the fitting... With those things, I could have fixed it enough to get down the mountain. Instead, I ended up walking about three miles in the cold darkness to get some help. This is the days before cell phones and what have you. And I was too broke to have things like, you know, roadside assistance or something. Like, not that I could have called anyway. But, I mean, even in that situation, those types of tools, if you, if you have skills to go with them, you know, I could have... If I could have found a piece of tubing that fit on the fuel line that was from my vehicle that still would have reached if I cut a patch piece off, I could have disconnected it from wherever it was connected to, cut a piece off, reconnected it, took that piece, patched the fuel line, and is that a permanent repair? No, but I probably would have been able to get off the mountain. And I could have probably done that with dollar store, uh, you know, multi-tool and some zip ties to, to bind up the, uh, the rubber tubing. So don't overlook, like if you don't think you could afford to do this, And instead of having, you know, Mountain House, you have dollar store sardines. I'd rather eat sardines than sawdust. And I, there was someone in this community, I think there was a couple of you working together on a thing called the Dollar Store Survivor's Guide or something like Somebody I talked to on the air as a guest was doing that. I'd like to know, did that go anywhere? Did it happen? And if it didn't, maybe somebody should do it because I think it would be interesting. One of the things I thought about doing was this. Putting a budget on it. Not necessarily saying the dollar store, but saying you have to buy stuff for this project. $50. That's all you get. You can't go to garage sales. You can't say, well, I found this for free on Craigslist or whatever. You have to make it repeatable. That would be the rules to play the game. And everybody on the forum posts, here's the total of what I could do for prepping with $50 from retail outlets of your choice. So they could be the dollar store. It could be dented food at the, at Kroger's. And I think maybe we should do that. I, I don't think it's, it's Thanksgiving's coming. Maybe this is a pre-Christmas project to do. I'll, I'll look at it. Maybe it's something we launch like the, the week after Thanksgiving's over. And we, we come up with a thing and like we, we decide on the, I don't know. We talked about seasons. So the, the, the winter, uh, the winter solstice, right? December 21st. It might be the 22nd this year, whatever it is. Um, we, 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 we all, look at it and vote on it in the forum. If, if you think that would be fun, I'd, I'd like to do that. And I think a lot of people would rely on things like Dollar Tree and Dollar Stores and all to get it done. Just an interesting thought. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack, I'm just calling to get your advice on a couple uh, items I'm considering using in a sheet mulching project that's going in this fall. Um, <clears throat> first off, lawn clippings. I currently uh, live in a Subdivision neighborhood, I do have uh, the true green chem lawn type front yard. And um, 
debating whether or not it would be accessible to use those grass clippings as part of a uh, sheet mulch. I'm inclined to say no. Uh, it's just a readily available source of green material for that. Uh, I don't know how much impact those chemicals will have on the bottom as a bottom layer of sheet mulch. Uh, secondly, and this is probably a little off of the wall, but uh, I've got an overabundance of candy thanks to my children's trick-or-treating. I was thinking of maybe taking a bunch of that candy, crushing it up, and using that uh, in place of or in addition to a molasses as a sugar to feed the soil microbes. I'm not sure if that makes any sense at all. Uh, I thank you for everything you do for the show and hope to hear this on the air. Thanks. Okay, on this one, it's it's a pretty short answer. My answer to using lawn trimmings from from lawns that are maintained by companies like True Green Chem Lawn is do not do it, do not do it, do not do it, do not in any shape or form do it because that it is hit with herbicides and now you're going to try to garden broadleaf plants in a mulch that's been treated with herbicides specifically to suppress broadleaf weeds and all broadleaf weeds are you guessed it broadleaf plants it's going to result in all kinds of problems so just don't do it uh you got a bunch of candy you're going to bust it up all junk candy throw it in the ground and, and use that as a replacement for something like molasses or pure sugar or whatever okay it's it's mostly high fructose corn syrup um yeah there's glyphosate in your high fructose corn syrup the levels at which are almost insignificant there Could you do it? Yeah. Should you do it? I don't know. I wouldn't. But I don't think you would be able to find any measurable problems in your results by doing it. And the sugar will break down, and it will, will feed soil organisms. You have to ask yourself, though, does this really make sense? I like to use horticultural molasses because you, I got like a 50-pound bag of it for like 18 bucks or something like that. And that's a lot more than most people would ever need. You could do worse than getting two cups of table sugar and, and spreading that out the bottom of your sheet mold. So there's people that would tell you not to do it because you're feeding all the organisms, including the bad guys, and you haven't balanced your soil yet. I don't know. I've always gotten great results by feeding my soil organisms sugars. So I would probably be more likely to feed a little bit of table sugar in a sheet mulch than I would to use candy, but I wouldn't freak out over it. You know, your best things for sheet mulching are going to be things like leaves. So when you say, well, I'll use the lawn clippings because I can get a lot of it cheap and it's readily available. Well, a tree that's so treated with some of these chemicals that it's actually going to exude them in their leaves is going to be dead. So, so your, your, your lawn care companies, to be fair, use, use these chemicals at their recommended rates. They don't generally excessively use them by the manufacturer's recommendations. That's not saying they're okay, but what I'm saying is you if you have a customer with a couple big trees in his yard and you treat his lawn and his tree dies, you don't have a customer anymore, so you got to be paying attention to what the hell you're doing. So I generally see raked leaves as being completely safe. So that would be my go-to for your organic matter. You said something that I, I worry about you making mistakes with, though, because it's green. Okay, green is your nitrogen. Browns are your carbons. Now, not all nitrogens are greens and not all carbons are browns, but that's how we think of them in composting. Okay, When you're doing sheet mulching, you don't want to do composting. You really don't want to sheet mulch with, with, with wet green material 
Because one of two things is going to happen, and only two things. One, you're gonna if you if you get the ratios right and the mix right, you're gonna create a hot compost pile. This isn't terrible because if you're not gonna plant into it right away, so what? You made compost, but more than likely you're gonna lay down this layer of green. You're gonna lay down a layer of something else on top of it, and something else, and you're gonna make this lasagna-like formation, like lasagna gardening. Now, what's gonna happen is that green material is not gonna be able to bind with carbon. And it's not going to be able to get a lot of oxygen. And it's going to be wet. And it's going to start seeping its wetness out. And it's going to form a glee or a glay, depending on what country you're from and how you say that, which is like a seal that you can use to like seal a pond. Yes, it'll do that with the right mixes and depths and things. And it's going to go anaerobic. This is going to produce soil organisms you do not want. It's going to get sickly smelling and disgusting. You're going to go to plant it later. You're going to dig it up. You're going to go, what's that foul smell? And it's all that green matter in its own layer that's gone anaerobic. So we don't want that. So we really, for our mulching purposes, don't want green material. If we were going to, if we had grass from a known source, it would be better that we spread it out and let it dry out and become a brown. And let it become dry. And then we can mix it in with other things like leaves, etc. Um, one of the things I'm thinking about buying for this purpose is a leaf vacuum. They look like a leaf blower. Most of them actually double as a leaf blower. You put a bag on them, you vacuum leaves up, they shred the leaves and pack them into the bag. And I've thought about if I had the time, I would go around to places where people have a ton of leaves and say, I'll get rid of a bunch of your leaves for you just for the privilege of vacuuming them up. When they say, how much is it? I say, it's free. And you could fill truckloads With shredded leaves, that's money. That's money for mulch. That's money for sheet mulch, too. That's that's the bomb. So I would be looking to things like that, straw from known, known sources. I don't like hay for sheet mulching. It's okay as a, a thin, scattered top mulch, but hay does the same thing. If you get, like, horse-grade hay, premium stuff you should be feeding a horse is not mulching with, and you mulch a layer of it, it goes anaerobic, where straw... And since it's hollow and it's it's fully dried to a brown, it's a carbon, it, it, it acts the way you would want it to in a sheet mulch. So don't use the lawn clippings for more than one reason there. So don't even dry them out and use them. Here's the other thing. Things like glyphosate, Roundup, and other herbicides. And you probably don't have glyphosate in your, your lawn clippings because Roundup tends to kill grass. So you have other herbicides in your in your um, in your in your lawn clippings. <laughs> Those things, the number one way to break them down is by exposure to UV light. So if you take even something like straw that has been hit with glyphosate and you spread it out thin and you let the sun beat down on it for a month, it will pretty much neutralize most of what the glyphosate could do to be uh, detrimental to you. It really will. Um, but if you bury it and protect it from light, Then you extend the duration, and almost all herbicides, even if they're persistent, even if they last a long time, even if they're far worse than something like atrazine or glyphosate or 2,4-D, they still last longer when they're not exposed to UV light, and they still break down faster when they're exposed. So if you take chemically treated material and bury it away from the light and compact it, how long that, that herbicide lasts is extended. So it's a bad idea all around. I would go to leaves. That's your go-to. Uh, let's take one more and we'll wrap for the day. Hey, Jack. This is uh, Randy from Ohio. I was just wondering on starting a small business, what's the best way to uh, find health coverage? 
you know, the health coverage mandate. It's a big dilemma for many, and that I believe that's the only thing holding me back. And uh, really find a lot of use out of all of your uh, podcast. Uh, keep up the great work. Thank you. Okay, well, there is no good answer, okay? There's, there's absolutely no good answer to this. There's different options. One would be risky uh, in case something bad happened. You would be go uninsured for a year and pay the penalty of only 1%. That would be less money. Take all the money you save by not having insurance during that time and save it, and then use it to fund your insurance when you buy it in the second year and the penalties significantly increase. That would that would be one off-the-cuff way and check with a CPA because I'm not sure how long that really cheap penalty lasts. I don't know if it has to do with how long it's in place or how long you're uninsured. So that would be an example of something I don't know because I stay insured. Let me just start off with, well, what do I do? Because that's what I always try to do. Whatever you ask me, well, what do I do about that? I have individual health insurance. My wife and I looked at it, and it was less expensive for me to have a policy and her to have a policy uh, rather than for us to have a joint policy. So we, we both have our own policy with two different companies, by the way. And uh, because of my income level, neither of us qualify for anything other than go out and buy your damn insurance. So we went out and we bought our damn insurance. And so we do that. So I got an insurance policy with like a $7,500 deductible. They cover nothing. They cover no co-pays, no, no They don't cover anything to that number. And then it's like 80-20, and then over a certain threshold, it's 100% for any plan year with a limit, an upward limit. And that cost me about $300 a month, 300 and change. That's what it is. Okay? This gets all kinds of complicated here, but that's what I do. High deductible, lowest cost I can get, make sure I'm insured, don't pay my penalty. My penalty by now would exceed what it costs me in insurance, so uh, that's not why I'm doing it. But if I was considering not paying uh, for, for health insurance, by now their law that's not a new tax that effectively is a new tax because they lied and admitted they lied and still got it through the Supreme Court would effectively make me by a financial choice choose to buy health insurance for now, for now. There's a cap on the penalty, and if insurance keeps going up, it may very well be that the cost of insurance exceeds the penalty. But it has to exceed it by a lot for you to take that gamble. Because it's not just that I, I have to pay the penalty. I'm also not getting anything for it. I'm not getting any insurance. So high deductible, catastrophic, best I can do, health insurance. Ironically, as a young male in good health before Obamacare, what I had was a similar policy, but my deductible was around $4,000, same type of situation. Um, it was 100% after I met my deductible, not 80-20. And I had what's called an HSA, or a health savings account with it, where I could contribute money, kind of like an IRA, where I deducted my contribution to the HSA from my income. And then I could pay any qualified medical expenses out of the HSA. When Obamacare came in, my ability to get an HSA with a plan, plan that I can afford or make sense for me went away. So I don't have that option. You might want to check. You're in a different state than I am. Who knows? So those are some things you can look into. Another thing you can look into is the healthcare.gov marketplace or Obamacare. Oh, we hate Obamacare. Yes, I know. But insurance is insurance, and they did it. So... 
here's what I look at when I go to healthcare.gov. If I, in Texas, had one child and a wife, what I qualify for. If my income is below $20,000 as a self-employed person, I probably won't qualify for Medicaid on income alone, and I won't qualify for savings on a marketplace insurance plan. And he gives me a link with next steps. They're probably going to make me vomit, uh, so I don't really want to look at them. Uh, but there's basically check to see if you qualify for anything else. So since I'm so below an income threshold, there may be some other more Obama-esque Obamacare that I qualify for at that point. So I would have to check into that if I'm below that level. Assuming you're going to go self-employed, I'm going to assume you're going to make more than 20 grand a year, or you probably can't afford to be self-employed. If you make about, and this is Texas for three people in a household, 20 to 50,000, it is likely I would find a, a health plan with lower monthly premiums plus savings on out-of-pocket costs like deductions and co-payments. If I make between 50 and 80, I would probably find a marketplace insurance plan with lower monthly premiums, but not deductions for out-of-pocket uh, out expenses. And if I'm above 80 grand, roughly, I'm not getting anything. I have to go out and do what I do, which is buy the best plan that I can afford for my situation. But at 80 grand a year and up, you can afford $300 a month for insurance. But that's just for you. That's not for your spouse. It's not for your kids. This is where it gets all kinds of convoluted, too, because often it, the case would be that if your wife wasn't your wife, she would qualify for Medicaid and CHIP. See how the state's really about keeping families together? See how that works? Isn't that amazing? That, that, that actually your, your cost of living would go down if you just weren't married? You could still cohabitate. There's no law against that unless you're doing it specifically for fraud, but we weren't doing that. We're just trying to get back together. I'm not suggesting you do it. I'm just saying this is how the deck's stacked. Now, there's a lot of other things involved here, too. So if you're just self-employed and you're paying your own insurance, you have to spend a lot of money before it becomes a deduction from your income. Okay. If you form a corporation, SC, LLC, whatever, and your company pays for your insurance, which could still be you just working self-employed as a, um, let's say, a consultant to companies you used to work for before. Typical thing. I'm going to go off and be a consultant or a contractor for my former employee. They're going to pay me more per hour. I'm responsible for my own stuff. They can't tell me when I want to work. I do a project basis. Lots of people doing that now. Okay. Here's where it gets all gummy. Now, you set up a corporation, uh, you Inc., and you just tell your company that's paying you, you make the checks out to you Inc. instead of you person. They don't care. It's actually better for them. It's cleaner that way. The, the, there's no chance the federal government's going to come in and go, you have a contractor that's really an employee because you don't have an agreement with them. They have an agreement with your company that you own. Very clean. So they're, they're happy. Okay, now <laughs> your company needs to buy insurance for you. Now you're in my world. Even if your income threshold's low enough, you can't take your company to the marketplace and buy your marketplace insurance. Why does this matter? You can still say your small company's exempt from the mandate. So you go buy your own insurance as an individual, but it's not a tax deduction. So you either pay more by buying through your company as a company buying insurance for one, or you can go to the marketplace and buy it for less but not deduct it. And then you have to sit down and do the math. How much are you saving by going to the marketplace? Okay. And what, what are you saving by having 100% deductibility? 
of their premium. It's it's a mess. And anybody that thinks Obamacare is a good idea doesn't understand anything I just said and has probably got their fingers in their ears right now while I'm explaining it going, la, 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 I don't want to hear it, la, 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 Obamacare is great, la, 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 my homeless cousin has insurance, la, la, la. This is a complete disaster. This is a complete This is, it. it, it right now, insurance is more expensive and the situation is worse. For most Americans, period. And those that it's not worse for, we are five years away from it being worse for 98% of people from a cost standpoint. And this is what I, I want you guys to understand. So that's the best I can do with solving the problem. So now I want to do, I want to play a little Jack historian and I want to go back to what Jack Spierko told you in 2008 before Barack Obama was elected, and then reiterated multiple times as everybody was going to call Congress and shut this down, and we can't have this, and Olympia Snow gave us a snow job and gave us Obamacare. This is what I said would happen. Again, before Obama was elected, Obama would win because the country was going to do it, no matter how dumb it was. Obama would introduce Obamacare. It would pass. No matter what you said, it was going to happen. It would pass. It would be such a disaster. This is before anybody knew what it was. I said this. That by the time the Republican president that would come after Obama, after two terms, this is what I said then, okay? 2008, I said this. Go back and, I can't go searching through it. You start listening to 2000, you'll find me say this. Two terms of Obama would get a Republican in. About midway through that Republican's term, we would revisit this and go to what would become a actual government takeover of healthcare. Because by that time, the situation would be so bad, those who begged the government to stay away from healthcare would turn to the government and beg them to fix it. And my belief is that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. That's why it's not repeal Obamacare. Repeal and replace. Repeal and replace. You know? I remember I had Michael Bolden on from the 10th Amendment Center, and he said, you know, you should, and I did, I created a meme, and it said, we should repeal the Stamp Act and replace it with something better. It said, no founding father ever, right? Even though it's kind of what they did, Whiskey Rebellion and all that, but that's just history. Who cares about that, right? Okay, anyway, um, that's what's coming. You're going to see the introduction of basically a single-payer system by Republicans. They won't call it that because it has socialism written all over it. But that's what it'll be, and it'll still have a private option. In other words, people with money that want their own private insurance will still be able to go get it and pay a big premium for it. But there'll be a government-style insurance program that anybody, even rich people, qualify for. But they won't make you do it. They'll just say it's available. And government can run out of loss. And the Rush Limbaugh's of the world will point out accurately, I might add, this will put these big insurance companies out of business. That's not the accurate part. Because they can run out of loss. And a real company can't. There'll be less for-profit insurance companies. There'll be a few. They'll probably be very, very good, and you probably won't be able to afford it. Only people that are rich and people in Congress will be able to afford it because they'll pass themselves a law that says that we're paying for it for them including in their pensions. 
And they'll say it so that they're not a burden on the government system that they had to give us because it was the only way to fix the problem. That's what's coming. No, Jack, we'll stop it. No, you won't. Okay? No, you won't. We'll burn down the switchboards. No, you won't. And they won't care if you do. Because what's going to happen is the switchboards are going to be burned down by people like this man here that called in. This is, hey, listen, I need a solution to this. I don't even care what it is anymore. I can't afford two grand a month to put my family on health insurance as a self-employed person. I can't. I don't care. I don't care what the solution is, but I can't afford it anymore. Well, quality of care is going to go down. Quality of care is already going down. General practitioners are walking away from their practices and writing books, for God's sakes, rather than, and going into real estate now. Okay? I've seen it happen. It's coming. And I don't have a solution for that one. That's kind of a downer. So we should end on something a little bit more up, shouldn't we? What can we end today's show on that's kind of positive? Well, there's a fundamental reality that government refuses to accept. Health is not health insurance. And health care is not health insurance. You see how they call it that? They made the two words synonymous with it. People now have health care. Well, people have always had health care. Health insurance is not health care. I know I have some liberals in this audience that are screaming at me, don't bother, you don't understand what I'm saying, or you got your fingers in your ears going la 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 and you don't want to. Health care is what a doctor provides. Insurance companies do not provide health care. You have to understand the two things are different. And this is who your primary health care provider should be. Do you know who your primary health care provider should be if you are a grown adult? Do you know? Oh, my doctor that I've worked with. No, no. Here's what you do. Find something reflective. I don't know, maybe your phone, a mirror, if you're in the car. Don't get in a wreck if you're in the car. Find something reflective and look in there. You see the person looking at, at, back at you. That should be your primary health care provider. That person should understand when something's wrong and start taking corrective action before you need your chest cut open. That person should be the one that says, I'm prescribing for you myself to sit down and breathe and count to 10 while you breathe. One, in and out. Two, in and out. Three, four times a day to pause and do that. I'm prescribing for you to drink a cup of herbal tea. I'm prescribing for you to lay off the beer a little bit because your gut's getting a little bit too big. I'm prescribing for you to get out and take a walk every day. I'm prescribing you to eat a little bit better and stop eating Twinkies and Ho-Hos. I'm prescribing all that shit for you. And since I live inside of you and with you, I'm going to be a rigorous pain in your ass to make you do it. You should be your own primary health care provider. And this country would be so much better off if we'd start teaching people that. Okay, I'm teaching you that right now. The public school system is not going to teach this to our children. They will teach them in health class what birth control is and how to buy insurance. That'll, that will be a health care, that will be a health class, uh, chapter, uh, in, in seventh grade, how to, how to buy, how, how to make your employer provide you health insurance or something like that. Okay. That, that's, that's four or five years away if the public school system holds together that long. Uh, they're not going to teach this. You know, your politicians aren't going to tell you this. And if they do, they'll be attacked as being crazy, uh, the few that might. Um, your, your unions aren't going to talk about this. The doctors sure as hell aren't going to talk about this. The drug companies won't. The food industry won't. 
No one will, except a few handful of us that say, hey, you are your own primary health care provider. And, you know, under what authority do I say that? The authority of Jack Spirico? No, the, the father of, of, of medicine. Father of medicine. In fact, not just the father of medicine, the father of modern medicine. Do you, do you know who the father of modern medicine is and when he was born? Um, he was born in the year 400 B.C. in Greece. Died in the year 370 B.C. He did all right for living back then. He was 90 years old, so kind of knew what he was talking about. He was a Greek physician, and his name was, anybody yet? Hippocrates. Hippocrates today, and if you go to medical school, they'll tell you this, the father of what you do is Hippocrates. That's why there's a Hippocratic Oath. And there's a lot of quotes from Hippocrates and a lot of things from his time, but the, the most important thing to me that Hippocrates ever said seldom gets talked about. Definitely not in medical schools. Definitely not by doctors. Patient. Heal thyself. Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine, believed that the doctor and I'm talking about the physician, was more a PhD in today's vernacular than an MD. That the purpose of the physician was to educate the patient so that they could heal themselves. And that's the good news. We can do that. We can't fix everything. If I get some sort of advanced stage cancer that's highly treatable, I will mortgage the farm to pay for it if I believe it will save my life. Because i got shit to do. I don't want to check out early. I really don't. You know, I'll also say this. If I ever get something that I know is not treatable, I won't have the last years, the last days of my life, or last months, whatever weeks, whatever I have, I won't have them destroyed by chemotherapy that won't help me either. I'll fight if the fight is worth fighting, and I'll accept if it's not. It might be easier to say now than if it ever occurs, but that's how I feel about it anyway. But day to day, I know when I'm not feeling right. I know when I'm working too hard. There's some days that you just, you know, I don't come on the air. Taking a day off. Stressed out. Not very often. I have a pretty hell of a work ethic, but I know when to take a break. There's days when I get on the air and I do 35 minutes. Not often, but when it happens, you guys got to deal with it because I got to take care of me so that I can be here for you. These are, these are the things that we need to be understanding to care for ourselves. If we simply took the path of seeing ourselves as our own first-level primary health care provider, this country would be remarkably more healthy. And if we actually had internal dialogues where we spoke to ourselves as though we weren't ourselves, where we make excuses, we spoke to ourselves as though we were a third-party observer, if we would learn a lesson from, yes, a religion, a religion of Buddhism, detachment. Buddhism teaches the detachment from things, possessions. A lot of value in that. But I think one of the other lessons of Buddhism that we tend not to learn, and I'm not a Buddhist, I don't think you should convert, we can still learn from the validity of other beliefs. Is that we should detach from ourselves. By detaching from ourselves, removing these emotional things and saying to ourselves, self, if I wasn't you, if I was your best friend and I was observing you at a distance, what would I advise you to do? If we would be our own health care providers that way, we'd live longer, 
and the years we have would be better spent. We'd have more energy. Something to think about. And I know this question started out with health insurance, but it's important that we understand and maintain in our minds the difference between health insurance and health care. Patient, heal thyself. The doctor is your teacher, not your primary health care provider. You are your primary health care provider. So says Hippocrates, the founder of modern medicine. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Doctor, my eyes have seen the years And the slow parade of fears without crying Now I want to understand I have done all that I could To see the evil and the good without hiding You must help me if you can Doctor, my eyes Thank you.